I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. This never happened to the other fellow. For your eyes only, darling. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. What of you? Hello and welcome back to For Your Ears Only. This is the all-seeing, all-knowing James Bond podcast of the Optimism Vaccine Network. I'm your host, Jake Tropila, joined as always by my co-host, Jack Eason. Jack, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing pretty well. Excellent, Jack. It may not be evening where you are, listener, but uh, it certainly is the evening when we were recording this. Um, but, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's get right into it. So, uh, here we are, we're, uh, this is, of course, our James Bond podcast. We're counting down to the release of No Time to Die by going through the entire series. And we are on the third of four Pierce Brosnan films. This is The World is Not Enough. Year is 1999, directed by Michael Apted. Uh, Jack, had you seen this film in any form previous to this podcast? I had, yes. No, I've, I've seen this one on TV, I guess, mm. a lot many years ago. Um, but yeah, I, I'd seen this one, but I kind of, this one and the, and, uh, previous one, Tomorrow Never Dies, kind of, yeah, kind of bled together a little bit for me, just kind of James Bond and whatnot. So good, good yeah. to get a refresher. Indeed, yeah, and this these are kind of like the uh, the weird middle children of uh, Pierce Brosnan because we have his first film, of course, is probably his most well known and his most popular and probably his best in terms of quality. Some people would argue. Then you have his last film, which everyone in the world is uh, violently hates, uh, but we will get to that next episode. But yeah, so the world is not enough. Uh, the year is nineteen ninety nine. We're at the turn of the millennium. Um, and, uh, this is, uh, yeah, this is one of the early films that I remember seeing. I remember I watched this at home on pay-per-view, um, after I heard there was a new Bond film out. So, uh, and, uh, back when I was a kid at the ripe old age of nine years, I found this film to be, I would say, kind of dull. Uh, it was never really one of my favorites growing up, but, uh, revisiting it for this podcast, I actually found this is one of the more solid and well-rounded films of the series. Uh, I yeah, was pleasantly I, su- surprised. I would agree with that. I, am, um, as I say, this one just kind of bled together with, uh, with Tomorrow Never Dies for me, but watching it, there, there is a yeah. world of difference between these two films. Um, to, to a degree, I'm, when I was watching this, I was like, is this really really quite good or is just tomorrow never dies so bad that you know when you move on to the next film it just looks great um yeah. i guess we'll do we'll try and work through that conundrum indeed yeah i used to think maybe i kind of preferred tomorrow never dies to this film but uh turns out i was wrong um but yeah let's uh let's get into the world is not enough and see why we liked it uh the film opens of course you have your standard gun barrel which opens to reveal for the first time ever james bond is on the other side of the blinking cursor um he's heading up into a swiss bank to get some money back money that was used to pay for a ransom of uh, one electric king by her father uh robert king sir robert king um bond uh is in this office and he dispatches everyone in the office before he escapes uh using a combination of a stun grenade that's connected to his eyeglasses and the barrel of his uh walther ppk or p99 whatever model it is and he uh grabs the cord 
out of the um, the blinds for the window and it, it is very much a, a thing I remember as being fun as he slides down the side of the building with the rope connected to uh, one of the knocked out goons lying on the floor. Um, but yeah, uh, I don't know, sol- solid little low-key sequence uh, for as bombastic as the series has got. I think it's, uh, before it takes a turn, of course, on the Thames River, you know, it's a very standard issue opening, I would say. It is, yeah. This is like the extended, uh, like the I think the longest pre-credit sequence of any Bond film. Yeah, because it starts with it starts with what you would think is a regular pre-credit sequence, what you've just described, and then it just keeps going. We don't get the credits. Uh, we we extend back to back to England and MI6 headquarters. Exactly, yeah. And uh, if you like MI6, this film sure gives you a lot of it. Uh, there's a lot of hanging out in the office, um, which I think is actually pretty interesting and kind of cool. But, um, yeah, after this little low-key action sequence, and apologies, I said Swiss Bank earlier. This is actually the opening is set in Bilbao, Spain, um, before returning to MI6 in London, of course. Um, and uh, Sir Robert King, he's assassinated with his own money, um, which they describe it was a fertilizer bomb because the money was dipped in urea, and the magnesium strip on the money was activated by a remote transmitter in his lapel pin, uh, it's a very needlessly overcomplicated it's explanation. It's science, folks. It's science, yes, indeed. But yeah, there's this gives way to a uh, chase on the Thames River. Uh, Bond jumps into a superboat, which uh, he steals from the Q Lab, which Q later jokes as his retirement boat for fishing um, to chase a would-be assassin down the river. And um, for a while, I think this, uh, before it eventually wears out its welcome, and I'll get to that in a second, but I think the shots of the two boats going down the Thames River, which I believe this is the first film to do, feature any sort of watercraft to do so, uh, this stuff looks really good. Yeah, um, absolutely. It's, you know, there's a few well-placed explosive barrels here and there, but uh, this is a very solid sequence. Um, It kind of loses me when Bond goes on land and he's able to steer the boat through, like, a cafe and the busy London streets. There's definitely uh, a question there. It's like a 90-degree turn somewhere in there, and it's like, I don't know how the boat is doing that, but who knows? Bond magic. Bond Uh, magic, yeah. He's a naval veteran. Perhaps he's just, he learned that, secret trick that one secret trick they don't want you to know about <laughs> steering a boat on land that's but, um, that's a that's how you become a commander in the royal navy they it, give you a the, boat and no water and you have to make it go that is the final final test um yeah no, there's a great energy to this whole sequence um and again like i say it just contrasts so remarkably with tomorrow never dies for me that it just sort of the the spain sequence is kind of like kicks things off a little bit of intrigue and then I think part of it adds to it the fact that the credits don't kick in and you're just kind of wondering where they're going and it keeps pushing and then suddenly yeah. the boat explodes out the side of MI6 onto the Thames and it's like, well, you know, we're not, can't cut to the credits now. And just sort of like there, there's a, an interesting tension in kind of breaking with the familiar here. Yeah. And I think yeah. it's very it's very successful. And um, yeah, there's a couple of weird touches um like little jokes in in the the waterway thing. I mean, obviously, there's the goofiness from steering the boat, but they also he he soaks a uh, ticket warden or whatever a parking ticket guy who's actually yeah. a reality TV show. I remember, I remember there was it was a really popular show for a while in Britain, um, and oh. it followed clampers. You know, the guys who put clamps on cars or boots on cars, as, 
Americans yeah. tend to call it. And uh, one of the guys in that who I think was just playing it up for the cameras, you know, with such glee, was just, you know, was, he, he relished his job and, and everyone hated him. He was in the tabloids. People were like, just wanted to kill this guy. And so, of course, he's brought in for a cameo and he gets soaked by James Bond. A little bit of <laughs> revenge. One of those weird things that's almost lost to the sands of time. Like a tiny, small portion of people would have even noticed it the first time around. And that's shrinking, I think, as as time goes by. But um, yeah, no, I I really enjoyed this this sequence. Um, I mean, it does. It, it kind of goes on to a point where where uh, like Bond is basically driving a boat straight at her, and she's got a heavy machine gun, and uh, there's no like windshield or anything on this this boat. She's just shooting straight at him, but somehow can't quite hit him. Don't really yeah, understand bullets that. But, you fly know, around Bond. So so it goes. Yeah, the the old bulletproof Bond gag. But um, yeah, uh, this is it. Really sets things off, and it brings in the Millennium Dome, which of course was a big project on the in London at the turn. It was uh, all the controversy about whether or not you know the amount of money it cost, was waste, etc. So at least we got a Bond film out of it. So and that will live on. So you know, yeah, there's 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 a lot of interesting details to this this starting point. So yeah, uh, you know, uh, out and the there's. Gate. A- Exactly, and there's the he finally catches up onto she tries to escape in a hot air balloon. He sails off. Uh, he dives out of the the fishing boat after launching it into the air. He's holding on a basically from a rope above the Millennium Dome. For she shoots the uh, the hydrogen canisters that are attached to the uh, balloon uh, to basically kill herself. So there's this really it's an intense sequence followed by a suicide on the uh, the act of this assassin. Um, PG yeah, thirteen strikes again. They're indeed. just getting heavier. Yeah, they certainly are. Yeah, um, and yeah, Bond falls onto the Millennium Dome. He messes up his shoulder, and then as he falls, he lands into the opening title sequence. And then we hear this. This is The World Is Not Enough, of course, by Garbage. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I think this is the best of the Brosnan theme songs. Uh, do you have any uh, strong opinion on this song, Jack? 
I kind of do. Honestly, I don't like it. I'm not a fan. Oh, and I, no. and I reading reading up on it, I was kind of surprised. Apparently, it's super popular. I don't know. It's just something about the melody to it. It's just a little... Yeah, you know, I don't... Yeah. The world is not enough. I don't... You know, I don't know. I'm just not... I'm not. I'm not sold. Uh, I my my note says a garbage song by garbage. <laughs> I'm, that's that's fair I'm, to say. I'm feeling. I'm feeling cruel. I, I don't know. I just feel like maybe the uh, this is the only one where I you know honestly I take tomorrow never dies. Cheryl Crow I felt was more in line with like the Shirley Bassey Tina Turner belting kind of thing. This hmm. I, yeah I don't know. It's just it's just not that interesting a song to me. I don't think it's like outstandingly terrible or anything. But I'm just. I'm not sold on this one, but I, I don't know. That's most fair. most most of the songs I wouldn't listen to outside of the film, so maybe it's great. <laughs> maybe there's a really great part, great hook that I I just wasn't really paying attention to. But in any case, I'm not going to dwell on it. It's not. This did not diminish my my uh, enthusiasm at all. Sure. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan. You know, it's probably is between this or uh, I'd say Tomorrow Never Dies is a close second for me for the. Um, for the bras and themes. I mean, it's no die another day, which we'll get to, <laughs> but um, oh yeah, there's something, something about it in the Shirley Bassey sense. that reminds me of diamonds are forever where there's bits where like uh, the, she'll pause the singing and then really get into it. And this is here. It's really evident before the chorus. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, I enjoy it. Um, but I will say though, that overall, I don't think Brosnan's songs rank highly in my overall selection of the themes um but uh yeah in any case we uh that's the 90s yeah Yeah, we get so back to the action um sir robert king is buried the assassin is dead with no leads uh bond has a dislocated collarbone but by seducing the uh the nurse in the mi6 hospital played by serena scott thomas he's cleared for duty that that, uh, that doctor's name being molly warm flash molly warm flash yeah That's warm <laughs> flash i did not i did not pick that up in the film found that out later yeah, Doctor Warmflash. You know, the, certainly the most respectable name a female character could have in I one tell of you, these this films. This is a hostile work environment. He sleeps with her to get medical clearance, which he shouldn't have gotten. And, and later on, it's revealed M knows this happened, but still sends him out there. This is yeah. MI six is courting some serious lawsuits. Even uh, even Money Penny gives Doctor Warmflash a knowing look that yeah. uh, she did, you know may have had some unscrupulous measures to clear Bond, but. Uh, yeah, so in any it's case, rough. yeah, so after this, um, there's the funeral of Sir Robert King, and then Bond goes to meet Q, and during this sequence, we meet Q's assistant, uh, R, played by the great John Cleese. Uh, what are your thoughts on John Cleese in this movie? Uh, I mean, I think I think he picks up pretty well. I, I remember this being kind of a fun thing. Um it's it's a little strange to me, not necessarily inappropriate, but there's this weird melancholy sense because it was built as Q's last film. It was felt that Desmond yeah. Llewellyn would retire after this film, um, and so it was kind of built as his final appearance, and then tragically died rather than in a car accident. He didn't even die of yeah. old age, just like right, just a little bit after uh, this was released. So it was it's a, the worst. Kind of, yeah, just a kind of terrible series of events there. But it's it's just sort of strange that there's a melancholy, kind of a metatextual melancholy to it because I know it's supposed to be, you know, that Bond and Q have been on so many missions together that he's sad to see him retire. But there, there's just a feeling of like, we'll never see him again. 
that yeah. I that I don't know it doesn't feel borne out in the film it's kind of more just telling the audience you'll never see him again and then John Cleese shows up and he's uh just kind of a broad comedy uh kind of routine to some degree I mean he's he's playing himself or playing I guess uh playing his Monty Python version of himself he's looking yeah. for arguments um so yeah, I think it works. I think it's kind of a fun little sequence. And after a hefty dose of action and so on, it's kind of like there, there's a good rapport there. So yeah. I wouldn't wouldn't have too many problems with this. Yeah, Q's, Q's exit really makes me sad, especially because um, Pierce, or as Bond says to him, but there's like a hint of sadness in his eyes where he says something like, you don't, you don't you're not actually leaving, are you? And then Q says, I'm going to leave you with two pieces of advice First is never let them see you bleed. Bond asks, well, what's the second? And then Q says, always have an escape plan. Then he goes in through a lowered trap door in the the floor. And that's the, that's so, it's so like melancholic, but so beautifully touching that that's the last you see of Desmond Llewellyn is he has an escape plan and he just sinks away from us forever. And yeah, and it's it's also doubly unfortunate that he died not from old age but a car accident. And I believe he was actually on his way to like a signing uh, for something Bond related. So oh, the, he, the final poetry. Yeah, he was still he was still just in it till the very end. And oh, what a what a lovable old chap to have been with us on this journey. I can't think of a better role to have. You know, absolutely. And I think it was what seventeen appearances. I think in thirty six yeah. years. I I noted down so. Yeah, that's a hell of a run. Um, yeah, we'll never, we'll never quite reclaim that. They, they don't even try, to be honest. No, uh, which is probably wise. No. So, anyways, um, the main story concerns Electric King, the daughter of the deceased Robert King. She's played by Sophie Marceau. She was kidnapped by a anarchist by the name of Renard. Uh, Renard actually is infamous for two things. One, he's killed a fellow Double agent. And two, before he killed the agent, he was shot in the head, and there's actually a bullet working its way towards the center of his brain, but until then, he can't really feel any pain, and it'll just make him stronger until the day he dies, which is actually, a, you know, certainly not realistic, but I think it's a very cool touch. Um, yeah, and, there, there's definitely a nice poetry to that in terms yeah. of his, his anarchist leanings, and, and all of his senses are shutting down as it loses sense of taste and smell. Yeah. Uh, so he's he's basically on a death spiral. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So Bond is uh, hired as uh, to be the new bodyguard for uh, Electric King because uh, Renard is a threat to her, and she's working on building a pipeline to run oil through Istanbul. Um, at least I believe that's where it is going. Uh, no, no, isn't it going or, through like Kazakhstan and Istanbul? It's where the other ones are located through, I think. Right. Oh, ultimately, right. The plot concerns the ones going through. It's uh, Azerbaijan is where hers is going through. But right. um, yeah, Azerbaijan. But yeah, so um, Bond meets Elektra. He gains her trust um, and uh, they go skiing together. Um, but as they're skiing, they're attacked by a bunch of snowmobiles with parachutes on them called Parahawks. Uh, luckily, with Bond's cunning, he's able to defeat them all. And I noticed that a lot of vehicles in these movies, they uh, must be like their paint must have a coat of gasoline in it because as soon as they collide into a tree, they just burst into the most violent flames I've ever seen. The standard movie issue. Yeah, standard movie issue. It's like in, well, I mean, you know, going back to Dr. No, of course, where the 
uh, the cars must have had like an anti-explosive traction on the tires of the car so that the second they're airborne off the side of a cliff, they're exploding. But uh, yeah, so we get a, another action sequence here. Um, and then this is also where one of Bond's gadgets comes into play. He has a, uh, a jacket specifically made to survive avalanches. It uh, inflates and we get a taste of it earlier when it comically engulfs the poor body of John Cleese. I guess is what he also he was brought in for is the physical comedy of all. He's a very goofy, lanky guy. Um, but yeah, I believe it's also right around here we meet uh, Renard properly. He's played by the great Robert Carlyle. Um, when we are introduced to him, they're in this like really foreboding place called the Devil's Breath where men come to pick up scalding rocks to test their strength. And this is basically like a, a, his <laughs> where he's inhabiting, I guess, to to test his his limits of feeling no pain um but uh yeah I, f I vaguely forget what happens in this sequence but he's working basically he's working with electra's uh one of electra's bodyguards a guy named davidov who's in turn betraying electra and then once bond sleeps with electra he actually murders davidov and then follows him to uh let's see where do they go uh, i believe this falls. yeah they go to um kazakhstan um to w the base of operations for an underground nuclear facility which uh this plot gets very complicated forgive me if i'm jumping around i'm trying to get my bearings on it it's all um, good yeah. I, you're doing better than i could uh, at this point yeah. um, yes that's right and he has to go and uh, i don't remember dr arkov yet he pretends to be him or something i don't remember he that's dies right, somewhere yeah. on the way too yeah, Arkov is killed at the Devil's Breath sequence, um, and then Bond murders Davidov and then takes on the idea of Dr. Arkov. Uh, they go to a nuclear underground facility in Kazakh or, uh, yeah, Kazakhstan, and this is where we meet uh, our other Bond girl of the film, uh, Dr. Christmas Jones, played by Denise Richards. Um, I think we should take a moment to address some certain things about this character. Uh, namely, she's usually considered to be one of the worst Bond girls uh, in the entire series, if not the worst Bond girl. Um, I think a lot of the criticisms that have been lobbed at her are pretty unfair. Um, what do you? What do you? What are your thoughts on Christmas Jones as a character? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, she's goofy. It's it's kind of a dumb thing, but at the same time. It's not exactly without precedent in the James Bond films to have a yeah. kind of sexy scientist with a ridiculous name. Uh, and honestly, I feel like, you know, I mean, a lot of it was leveled against Denise Richards. So at this time was, you know, she was a pretty popular star um, coming up yeah. off of, uh, I guess, like wild things and stuff. You know, and it was kind of she was she was one of the, the top sexy ladies of the day. Um and I think, right. and from that, I think there just came a backlash of you know that she's stupid and you know a bimbo or whatever. And I think a lot of that got channeled into like, look at this stupid bimbo character she's playing. But frankly, there's nothing Denise Richards could do with this character other than I think bring a kind of an upbeat attitude. What she does, I mean, I think she leans into the goofiness pretty well and looks like you know, kind of. I, I think she does pretty well to just kind of have a good time with it. I really, I don't understand why people hate this character so much, particularly other than something, I like, I feel like a lot of it is personal against Denise Richards, and I don't know how yeah. that will age, uh, considering she's, you know, less, you know, current right now. Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's a goofy character, but I don't, I don't think it's particular. it's not goofier than 
shit ton of other characters we've already got <laughs> the doctor's yeah. named warm flash for god's sake um yeah so so you know why not i don't think it's it's a big problem i think denise richards does fine with very very meager material yeah the problem the the script is certainly doing her no favors because it's it feels like a lot of it has been reverse engineered from her name her character is dr christmas jones so there's uh, there's jokes about it, but I do like um, where she meets Bond in the guise of Doctor Arkov. She introduces herself as Doctor Christmas Jokes, and, or Christmas, <laughs> Jesus Christ, Doctor <laughs> Christmas Jones, and she says, "And please, no jokes. I've heard them all." And Bond says, "I don't know any jokes about doctors." I think that's a very clever line. That's um, and works. yeah, it works. Um, but I think, yeah, I think a lot of it is recency bias um, against her um, with with the role. And I think also her most popular role, as we said, is she's Kelly from Wild Things. So she's like a teenage femme fatale in her next big movie. She's supposed to be a nuclear physicist. And I don't think will, people were willing to suspend their disbelief for this fictional spy action movie that that could be possible. Yeah. But yeah, it's it just, just seems- it's just as well that Tammy and the T-Rex has been re-released and will completely rewrite the Denise Richards timeline. Oh yeah, I'm all I'm all in for Denise Richards. I think I think she's great. I think there's even just a few like moments on her own where she's kind of like she she does this uh she does this like really great slow double take where after Bond descends into the nuclear facility where like she's kind of stares off at his direction and like the wind's blowing. She doesn't say anything, but she looks particularly good in the shot. And I don't I don't I'm not like trying to be sound like a perv or anything, but it's very it's very cool, I think. Yeah, um, no, it's. I think it's. I think it's funny. Um, someone will pro- I'll probably speak more about it later on. But um, the director Michael Apted apparently uh, brought his wife in, Dana Stevens, ooh. to do some secret rewriting, you know, or uncredited rewriting to bolster the female characters in the film. Michael yeah. Apted being a, a relatively serious director, um, it's kind of an unusual. I mean, he's done other action films. I mean, he did it enough with Michelle Lopez, which is a strange quasi-subversive domestic violence film. Yeah. Um, but, um, he, yeah, he took on the Bond film. He's not something I would associate with. I mean, obviously, he's, he's best known probably for the 7-Up documentary series. Yeah. Um, and also as, I think he was president of the Academy for a while as well, and, you know, separate of his filmmaking. But he got his wife to rewrite um, the character to kind of bolster some of the female perspectives. Um, and I feel like... Christmas Jones was pretty much beyond beyond saving. I don't think she expended too much effort on that. Yeah. Um, but luckily, Electric King got a lot of uh, good work, which we'll we'll get to. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about her a little bit now. I mean, Sophie Marceau is uh, f- fantastic. Her, you know, the character is ultimately revealed to be the true villain of the piece. But um, I think early on, she displays a, a great sort of vulnerability um, as part of her ruse. But um, yeah, her her and Renard, I think are. I agree with what you said off mic. Is that I think they're a fantastic set of villains. Um, Absolutely, they're, they're ultimately um, revealed to be lovers, and it's it's a very interesting dynamic. Is how basically Stockholm syndrome has actually kind of shifted the power, and she's the one in control, and she's dealing she's dealing with this guy who wants to basically will do anything for her. And but he's like it's it's kind of hinted that he's sexually impotent and he can't please her or get any pleasure from her in any case because he can't feel anything. So it's it's a very odd but sort of wonderfully explored dynamic between the two of them. And I it's it's something that's it's 
rare you see in a Bond film. Um, this kind of this kind of characterization, at least, and I think that's that's really what Apted brings into the film. It's the action sequence might feel perfunctory, but the story and character, I think, is where a lot of its heart lies, which is yeah. why this film succeeds. De- definitely, yeah. I mean, I, you know, kind of thinking back on it, I, I watched this film about a week ago at this point, maybe a little more than a week ago, and I have kind of keep returning to this one in a way that, honestly, I don't know if I've returned to any of the other Bond films like this, and it's... Kind of, I mean, I looked at Bond films for action sequences, and when you say the action sequences in this are not, they're not top tier. They're not, you know, the ones yeah. that you're going to remember. It's not like I returned to, you know, I think back to some of the shots in, in you know, in uh, in Goldfinger or uh, You Only Live Twice and, you know, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, some really well photographed action in those sequences. But right. the character dynamic, yes, between Electra and Renard is, I think, kind of unprecedented within the Bond series, they are an exceptionally well-paired villain group because they, they, they kind of bring out... And I, I think there's a, there's a wonderful subversion in Sophie Marceau's character, Electric King, because she is... In its, it could easily be looked at that she's, you know, she's young and beautiful and she perverts men and she, you know, like a femme fatale character. Yeah. But um, I think it's really, it's really interestingly brought out because what actually and what what really radicalizes her is that a price tag is put on her head by Renard when he kidnaps her and she finds out her father doesn't pay it and so there's yeah. this kind of so so in a sense she she becomes radicalized not by his anarchy but by her father's financial sense um which kind of plays back in again that then she gains an ideology where uh, where Renard doesn't have one, he's an anarchist. He's a gun for hire. He's he's essentially he's like James Bond in a sense. He's he's a as we keep describing as a, as a blunt instrument. He will be described as this several times in coming films. I think they found that description and really enjoyed it. Yeah. I'm guessing probably in Fleming used it originally. I have a feeling. Um, but you know he Renard and Bond in a sense are kind of similar. They're they're guns for hire. They they get jobs done. Um. And they kind of, and both of them have tasks to set out to do. But Electra is, I kind of was thinking about this earlier. I was almost like I was, um, I'm reminded of, you know, I, you know, Videodrome. There's this one great sequence where they describe, to not get too much into the film, but there's obviously Videodrome concerns this, this secretive television channel transmission from nowhere that just yeah. broadcasts torture. And someone is describing to the main character how dangerous it is and describes it that what makes it dangerous isn't the torture, but that there's an ideology behind it. Um, and I think this film runs with it, that that what uh, Electra gains is an ideology. And her ideology is essentially to counter counterpoints his anarchism and kind of it becomes this, this rampant capitalist ruse she you know she's basically goldfinger there's a reinvention of that was as we get to the plot it turns out her plot is basically to nuke all the other pipelines irradiate the whole area and then her pipeline becomes the only valid option for oil transfer yeah um, but i think it's just it's it's fascinating that she subverts that she knowingly you know utilizes all of her elements she's very self-aware she becomes, you know, she and she tricks everyone with that, and I think it's it, she's just a supremely interesting character yeah. compared to everyone else. And for a woman in the Bond series, is just incredibly 
interesting in how she how she goes about her business. Um, so yeah, I, I say, and, and meanwhile, you know, our anarchist Renard suddenly has he's not really an anarchist anymore because he believes in Electra. Suddenly, he has a cause as well, and and it's. I think it's just a very interesting, as you say, the power dynamics between them are really fascinating, and yeah. Bond doesn't understand them uh, until it's too late. Yeah. So yeah, I, yeah. Going through this, this is kind of something I return to, and I, I often wonder about you know action movies is like you know how important is plot in an action movie, and I think if the action's really exceptional, maybe it's not that important, but if you know, with something like this, you can really gain a lot of traction. Even if the action sequences are, they're not bad in this film, but they're certainly not, they're not as punchy or energetic as Goldeneye, for example. They're not, and certainly they don't right. match up to, I think, like some of the top tier Connery films, particularly, which had a much more kind of rough and ready kind of energy to them as well. Uh, Roger Moore sequences, maybe not so much, but uh, Roger Moore <laughs> went in another a little nod and a wink and a poke in the elbow or whatever so um yeah uh that's kind of laying the cards on the table i i would say I, I, this is kind of maybe my i probably my favorite of the brosnan era and i'm kind of thinking this honestly may stand out as a top tier bond film generally for me just based on renard and electra they are oh they're they should get their own film i guess i guess they kind of do bond's just sort of on the fringes for a lot yeah of this. it's it's interesting when bond is not like the the most interesting character in the room which i mean no offense to pierce but uh yeah they just they do so much with what could have really just been as so little one note roles oh he's a he's an immortal monster and she's uh backstabbing everyone left and right but yeah, they they really do bring these two soulful performances into it, and I th I think that that was all very exceptionally well said, Jack. I I, I appreciate having a man of your caliber on this podcast to, also, to yeah, say yeah. the things that I can't. Absolutely, and also Sophie Marceau is very hot. Of course, yes, she's easy so on the eyes. Just want to put that out there too. Another thing I'd appreciate uh, in this yeah. film. So yeah, absolutely, a lot of, uh, ticking a lot all of, the boxes. A lot, indeed, a lot of PG thirteen states of undress in this movie. That's um, true. Actually, I think there, there's there's a brief glimpse of nudity in there that I feel I I can't remember. I think I saw somewhere that in some prints of the film they had to do a little optical blurring. Mm. That's what happens when you hire a French lady. Indeed, might might have to investigate that later. Um, but uh, yeah, and then so she forms an interesting dynamic with Bond, and they're like really spending time with each other. I would say not since Bond met Tracy Bond back in uh, the '60s, where you know they go skiing together, and he's really also cast under her spell and is looking to do anything he can to protect her, and then. What's also really incredibly well done is when Bond meets Renard for the first time in the basement of the uh, or the shaft of the nuclear facility. Like normally when Bond meets a villain, he doesn't really let on who he is and they have they share a friendly rapport and, and you know, playful barbs and try to one up each other. But here, like Bond immediately points a gun to his head and says, I'm here to stop you. I'm going to shoot you in the head. And that's how this is going to end. And they have this really great um, conversation, this back and forth between the two of them that I it's it's even Bond even pistol whips him in the head, which is probably like one of the most violent actions I've seen Bond do against anybody in a film. But yeah, it's what do you what do you think of Bond meeting Renard? Yeah, um, 
like you say, there, there's definitely there. It, this one just has kind of high stakes. It's got a, uh, it's got a real bite to it. Yeah, it's, absolutely. Um, and yeah, and I, I guess it would say Carlisle has a kind of brings a kind of a nice understatement to this. He is not a a grand hammy villain. Certainly, come again. We go back to tomorrow. Tomorrow never dies. And Jonathan Price's uh, performance mm-hmm. is, is like right on the other end. Really, he's got a little. He's got a little makeup scar. And just, yeah, it kind of just plays with kind of a reserved menace. He's, uh, I'd say, I think the allyship between him and Bond is, is striking and that they are both just men with men with very specific skill sets yeah. uh, setting out to accomplish missions. And they just happen to be on opposite sides of the fence in this, in this case. And I think that's kind of what, in a sense, is... is um, highlighted as i say going back to electra king radicalizes renard to do her bidding just as they kidnap m later in this film and m to a degree in what she represents radicalizes bond to go above and beyond to accomplish his mission so there, yeah. there's an interesting kind of subversion of i mean the bond films in a sense are are you know politically dinosaurs of a certain degree they're they're very conservative films in terms of how they view nationalism and, and international affairs are kind of like right. you know, i would say like the james you know james bond is like the the embodiment of imperialism in a sense he just goes around the world and protects british interests for the good of everyone yeah. without any it's real true. question of of what's happening um so i think i think this film actually brings a little kind of a, of a brings that into a kind of a certain relief um because we realize that this radicalizing process you know can happen you know, through other organizations, not just through a national bureau like MI6, but through electorate, through a corporation, through, you know, a kind of a a, a grand capitalist uh, venture. But then that's also, you know, brought through. They have the, this kind of religious ceremony and stuff when she, she clears the pipeline to go around a church and stuff like this to ingratiate herself with the... Uh, some, oh, I guess, yeah. orth, orthodox uh, Catholics, I think. I'm not, I'm not sure of the, the sect... So yeah, there's just a lot of little interesting little details here that kind of brings Renard and Electra into sharp relief versus say M and and Bond as kind of two battling ideologies. But of course, Bond will win <laughs> for sure. It's not That's it's right. not that subversive. <laughs> yeah. Well, in any case, yeah. So after Bond and Renard meet, uh, Bond's cover is blown by Christmas Jones because Doctor Arakov is I think 67 years old is what she says. Uh, so, uh, basically this is also part of the PG 13 violence is that, uh, Renard machine guns down a lot of innocent scientists to escape with a nuclear warhead, uh, and Bond escapes at the nick of time with, out of the explosive shaft, nuclear shaft with, uh, Christmas Jones by his side. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, and also, uh, Renard has taken the tracking beacon out of the, uh, nuclear bomb so that nobody can locate him and he could be anywhere in the world. Um, so they go uh, to they discover that the bomb has been placed on one of the uh, pipelines for Electra. So Bond and uh, Christmas Jones hop aboard like a little I, I don't know what they call it it's, like a it's little like the oil uh, cleaning rig or uh, pipe cleaning yeah. rig because it's like the second time they've used one of these because this is, is yeah is the living daylights or well he's. Liv- which one do they use it to smuggle a guy across the That's border? Living, yeah, living Daylights, yeah, living the, day, the plug. Yeah. yeah, so they get on, but uh, they discover that half the plutonium's missing, so Bond decides to let it blow because he he suspects foul play with this uh, device it has been tampered with. 
so they let it explode, and then Electra and M believe Bond to be dead. And this is actually where Electra reveals she's a turncoat and shoots down everybody in the MI6 office and kidnaps M. Uh, so then Bond and uh, Dr. Jones <laughs> go on an adventure to save M. Um, we also forgot to mention uh, returning to this film after his appearance in Goldeneye is the great Robbie Coltrane as Valentin Sukovsky. And yes, uh, he steals a lot of scenes and basically every scene he's in, he steals just with his jovial charismatic performance and i i like that there's still sort of a, a slight hostility to his allyship with bond um the the, the but uh, i i think you know, he's a great screen presence and i like that his character kind of has the ending of an arc in this film as opposed to just being another ally that shows up for another bond adventure i feel like there's a real gravitas to the role and that's aided in part by coltrane's performance yeah but, definitely this is a nice yeah like, i think it's it's so sometimes people come back and you're like, I don't get it. Like Joe Don May showing up in, in Tomorrow Never Dies for no particular reason. It's like a kind of yeah. a pointless callback. But this this has some heft to it. It's a good, exactly a good use. Yeah, Bond. Uh, yeah, Bond tracks him down at his uh, his caviar factory, which is like on a weird oil or like a like a sea dock in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I'll um, freely admit I have no idea how you harvest caviar, so maybe it's all very accurate, but it seems a bit strange to me. It's beyond me, but uh, yeah. So then they're interrupted by a trio of helicopters with saw blades uh, hanging out of the bottom of them. Uh, and Bond, uh, you know, being Bond, he manages to destroy all three of them. One of them saws his car in half, which is kind of unfortunate. And I like the the kind of look of satisfaction on Zukovsky's face when he sees Bond's car get destroyed is pretty great. Um, but yeah, this is another... Uh, the thing about, like, the action in this film, at least compared to other films, because at least with, with like, the tank chase in GoldenEye, uh, as exciting and visually interesting as it is, it also is sort of propelling the action forward of the film like the narrative is going forward and here it's like bond goes to interrogate Zukovsky because he had encountered electra in his casino earlier in the film and basically paid her off with a million dollars in the form of a card game um but the yeah the action literally is interrupted so bond can fight some helicopters and then he goes back to interrogating Zukovsky. so um and it's i think also i'd be more forgiving if the action scenes were more had sort of that more robustness of the golden eye ones um but it it is what it is they're they're solid yeah i, I think yeah. it's fair yeah i mean i i say i don't think they're bad they're they're just sort of there's nothing that sticks out too much from them they're very right. serviceably directed um certainly there's been worse um oh yes so <laughs> so yeah we'll, we'll we'll take it as is yeah so yeah bond tracks thanks to zukovsky we we learned that he's basically loaning uh, a friend of his is loaning a submarine to electra in istanbul which is where um bond and uh, christmas jones go next um but once they're uh they're captured and bond is tortured in a chair with uh a rotating like uh, C wheel on the back of it that's extending a rod that is slowly crushing his windpipe, um, which is kind of kind of a kind of a horrible way to go if you think about it. But he's uh, he's he's saved at the end of the day by Zukovsky, but not before Zukovsky is gunned down by Elektra. Um, There's an interesting so end to the arc on that as well because it it's kind of Zukovsky has a cane and he frees Bond by shooting bond's shackle so he can open exactly. and escape 
Um, but it's kind of interesting because in Goldeneye, it was revealed that Zukovsky has the cane because Bond shot him in the leg in some previous encounter. Um, That's right. So I guess so. So it all it all comes around that that uh, Zukovsky able to save Bond's life because Bond shot him many years ago, wow. which again kind of brings kind of a a nice kind of a cut that they're they and they're enemies to the end in a sense, but they have just enough just enough of, a, of an allyship against Electra to make things work, which again is kind of a nice within the overall framework a kind of nice summation of international politics. I feel just enough kinship. To, to make enemies work together towards a common goal. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's kind of a nice a nice little thing. That's, Although I, it's almost a shame that, that, that he can't come back again because he's dead. Yeah. No, it is. Yeah, it is sad to see him go. But that's, yeah, that's just such a, I never, I can't believe I've never caught that. That's such a beautifully poetic moment uh, with these two men. But, wow, yeah. So but then he's got to go give chase. Got to track gives, down Electra. Gives chase. Electra. He tracks her down. Um, she. He. She basically tells him up front, "You won't kill me," and she radios Renard to dive with the submarine. But Bond does the unthinkable, and he shoots her right in the chest. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. And uh, he has a, a weirdly touching line where he goes and he he kind of brushes a hair out of the eyes of her corpse, and he says, "I never miss." Um, bring bringing it, you know, that sad ending to to that character, but uh, and oh yeah, he also frees M in the interim because M used the locator card from the nuclear missile to attach it to an old wind up clock. So that, all electronics are so, integratable. Yeah. yeah, it's it's this is more than any. It's like electronics are dominating the Brosnan films because like it's you know it Goldeneye is all about a satellite and. The tomorrow never dies is all about the press and it's true. the I just, news. I, I'm gonna take take a second and talk. This one does have one of my favorite Bond gadgets. This film, I don't, oh. I don't even recall where he uses it. Okay, but it's because it's a really stupid joke. And if a joke is stupid enough, I I really enjoy it. At one point, he has a credit card that is a built-in lockpick, and literally the credit card splits. To reveal a lockpick, a physical lockpick to, to <laughs> pick, which of course use credit cards to jimmy open locks, but this is, it's just such a stupid joke, and I may have laughed out loud when I saw it, because <laughs> just like, what, why wouldn't you? And it, it, yeah, as you say, all this electronics and nonsense, and they've, this is like the kind of thing that Silicon Valley would legitimately invent, yeah. is, you know, a, a credit card with a lockpick in it. It's just, yeah. Anyhow, just wanted to bring that up. That's one of my just little throwaway gag that I think works really well. That is, yeah, that's pretty great. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I totally do not know where he uses that either. But um, yeah, so in any case, uh, he, after killing Electra, he dives off the side of her building um, to get to Renard. And Renard is taking Christmas Jones underneath the sub. Um, there's this extended sequence now where Bond tries to get into the submarine and get to Renard where there's a lot of there's a lot of opening of hatches swimming underwater to get to other hatches getting inside walking across other rooms in the submarine flooding parts of the submarine to open more hatches to get out and it, it's very gets very convoluted fast but um, he ultimately he does find Renard and Renard has a he has like a golden uh, tube. It's I forget how they describe it. It's uh, a yeah, basically I'm not sure what it's, the it's interface a, it's a, here is. 
It's a golden plutonium rod that if he jams into the core of the submarine, it'll go nuclear. And this is what he'll use. Basically, it's a suicide mission to self-destruct on underneath the the as i'm describing this my wife is giving me a weird look as she walks by it um, all makes sense we but promise. Yeah, it's it's yeah it's it's science it's it's absolutely i mean it's a, it's a really goofy but kind of like an effective way of literalizing a very kind of ephemeral concept concept it's a sort of like if he pushes the big gold thing all the way in everything goes boom yeah and i was like okay fair enough i can i can understand that the stakes are are set let's let's roll with it yeah, for sure. So he gets in a scrap with Bond. He overpowers Bond because, of course, he can't feel any pain. Um, and then Bond uses a device on the submarine where if you hook up an air nozzle into a certain port, it'll eject whatever is in there out of it. And he uses that to shoot the rod out and it punctures uh, Renard's chest. But I think this is also a very touching moment where as Renard is finally able to die, Bond says... She's waiting for you, and uh, he can he can finally be at peace with his uh, his lover. It is, and it's it's again interesting because Renard's whole conception is he's an anarchist. He believes in nothing. His whole he's he's an agent of chaos. And of yeah. course, when he Bond gets a gets a one up on him by telling him that he's killed Elektra, and he, there's this realization that the the yeah. only thing in the world that can move the heart of this this terrorist is is a nice lady. Who's not That's so right. nice. <laughs> yeah, a nice lady who's not so nice, exactly. Um, but yeah, the day is saved. Uh, I think the submarine explodes, if I'm not mistaken, or just sinks underwater. Um, but uh, yeah, Bond uh, ends up celebrating with uh, Christmas Jones. Um, and then with that we, line. We get, well, yeah, and then this br- brings us to the final line, which many associate as being the worst line in the Bond series is... Uh, as they're having sex, uh, Christmas asks, what's wrong? And Bond says, I just thought Christmas only comes once a year. Roll credits. James Roll Bond credit. will return. Uh, I mean, I, I have some sympathy for them. I'm not. If I were writing a script, I'm not sure I could have resisted that either. It's just sort of, it's like, if you're going to call her Christmas, why it, not? It honestly had to have been written around the name. It's like they oh, thought yeah. of it first and like, oh, we have to. And then we'll fill in this Istanbul oil pipeline business later. But yeah, let's do this Christmas joke, guys. We got to have that for sure. Yeah, there you but, go. Um, I mean, so be it. Yeah. But yeah, overall, yeah. So that's uh, The World Is Not Enough. Uh, a solid, solid feature film, I would say. And uh, apologies to the audience if we sort of blaze through that one. But I think it's a. Uh, I think we're we're being really economic with our time here. Uh, well, I to, think so, but I, I think this is a film that really I think the theme uh, it stands out more than the plot, which I guess for sure probably yeah. a lot of them. But this one definitely it's it's really it's the the Electra Renard show. A lot of character uh, touches that are the highlights for sure. Uh, yeah. So, anyways, so, well, uh, well, Jack, you know, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm, go I'm, ahead. I'm just trying to think because one of the things I was looking at before that is apparently Joe Dante was considered to direct this, and I'm I don't even understand how that would have worked. I love Joe Dante's work, but uh, I'm kind of happy he didn't get this one. I yeah. feel like it would have been a very different film. I'm probably t- still smart, but jokey yeah. in a different way, maybe. I'm the one thing I'll say about Bond is that I'm really glad that no sort of auteur filmmaker that I love has attached themselves to it because it's really not about uh, their vision of Bond, although I would certainly love to see what some people do with it. I, I think, you know, it's it's more about 
It's more about just being a, a competent um, craftsman um, more than anything. But uh, I, you know, it's it's uh, it's it risks. Um, I don't know. I think it like risks uh, getting too wildly out of control if it's you know under somebody's one unique vision. Certainly, there there there's a committee steering it, which for better or worse. Uh, yeah, you know, and, it's and that's not things. to say. Yeah, it's not to say I support like you know corporate filmmaking, but I think I think Bond is certainly much more you know flavorful and, and enjoyable to watch than any of the Marvel films because those those are just soulless garbage. Um, there, there's I, definitely a wider swing of variety between these as they go. I mean, yeah, I've had this discussion. People, it's like, how do you hate the Marvel movies and like James Bond? It's like cause the James Bond movies are just more fun exactly what i'm gonna say i like well except when they aren't but whatever um i remember bond films sequences from them i don't remember anything from any marvel movie yeah no they're instantly more iconic and the yeah the marvel movies that were just they're just cgi jerk offs that are just building to the next thread of the next movie we have to we have to kill thanos who cares? CGI. Well, we'll be talking about CGI in in the next episode. Well, yeah, that's you know, speak too but, soon. But anyhow, but, yeah. and the, the other the other strange thing about this film, uh, as we fly in the face of popular opinion, this is the lowest rated film of the Brosnan era on Rotten Tomatoes. This is a fifty two percent critical approval rate. Wild. Uh, I, so I, wild. Yeah, that's ridiculous. And like I say, I think this has made the best of them. You know, I think it's between this and Goldeneye, certainly. I think Goldeneye is maybe a little better on the, the action sequences, but this, I think, is is much better in terms of its characterization and ideas. But yeah. certainly for it to be deemed the worst after Falling of Tomorrow Never Dies, to me, is insane. <laughs> but yeah. who knows? Well, yeah, anyways, shall we run some numbers? Absolutely. Let's let's get it done. Okay, so so how many people does Bond kill? It's the nineties. PG thirteen came in. Everything went crazy. So uh, this one's a little lower than certainly than mm. um, than Goldeneye, which is still our champion. Uh, he he killed twenty seven people that I, I counted hmm. in this film, which gives him a total of ninety three people. Which means in three movies, just three movies. Pierce Brosnan is the most lethal James Bond. He's killed more than anyone else. Wow. He's defeated Roger Moore at 86 across all of his films, and Brosnan's at 93 with a movie in hand. So that's that's the the, the carnage inflation of, of the, the 1990s. <laughs> a lot um, of we should mention that a lot of his kills, at least from what I recall, are from people in some sort of vehicle. There um, is. So he blows up all the helicopters. There's the like helicopters, three people the, in each of those. The Parahawks, and yeah. So. and stuff. Yeah, and the, and the submarine, there's like five guys in that that sink with it when he makes it sink. So yeah, it's 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 true. It's not like just strafing everyone with machine gun fire like, like Goldeneye, which honestly, Goldeneye, I don't even know how many people he killed because he just blows up an entire base in the first, you know, first three minutes. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, so anyhow, um... And then we, we get to our, our sex count where Brosnan's doing pretty well. By the late 90s, I guess things had chilled out a little bit because he, he sleeps with three different women in this, which is bringing us back to like the, the Connery, Roger Moore, golden average, really. Yeah. Um, and brings his tally to eight, which uh, is not, you know, he's not going to beat Roger Moore and, and Sean Connery, both <laughs> had 19 apiece. 
Um, although yeah. Connery got part of that from an unofficial one, so I guess Roger Moore is officially the horniest Bond yeah. uh, in a well, franchise. Maybe, uh, maybe for the listeners who haven't seen the next film, maybe Die Another Day has a, an eleven-person gangbang. Who knows? Oh, you never, you never know what they what they let happen <laughs> these days. Uh, yeah. look, looking at age differences, I mean, I feel like we're not really. I mean, Roger Moore era kind of no one can touch it. Let's, let's be honest, but uh, there's. An 18-year age difference between uh, Pierce Brosnan and Denise Richards. So that's uh, that's that's not insignificant. 13 years between him and Sophie Marceau, and 8 years between him and Serena Scott Thomas as Molly mm. Warm Flash. Who's, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I guess uh take long, longer to become a doctor than a nuclear physicist based on the ages ah, of the people ah, here. Ah. Uh, so oh, man. Take, take from that what you will. But obviously that's nowhere near the 30-year age difference that Roger Moore is rocking between nope. him and Carol Bouquet and uh, For Your Eyes Only. That's just creepy. So uh, this being the lowest rated film critically, how did this do at the box office? Well, let's see. We had a budget of $125 million. It's about $193 million today. Uh, yeah, and comparatively, that is $15 million more than uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, overall, this made, in the U.S., it made its budget back of $126 million, uh, which is $195 million today. Uh, and then it would go on to make $361 million worldwide, which was uh, $558 million if you adjust to today's numbers. Um, so yeah, not a bad, uh, not a bad haul, you know, yeah, these, I'd take it. Yeah, I'll, I, I certainly would take it, but this film is also, uh, we've, you know, brushed upon it earlier, but this is the zero Oscar nominations, but this is the first Bond film to be nominated for a Razzie for Denise Richards' supporting Razzie, performance. I believe it won the Razzie, I think. That's right. Yeah, it did win a Razzie, which, um... Which is just kind of cruel, and like it's I think cruel, it, but but it's, I mean the, the Razzies are a bunch of reactionary dipshits. So yeah. the the Thief soundtrack was nominated for a Razzie, exactly, just to give you a sense of how stupid everyone involved with that process is. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's yeah. Come on, and don't don't pay attention to the Razzies ever. Um, we all we all know which bad movies are bad. You don't need to have an award show to give Cats six Razzies, okay? ridiculous i don't even know if cats was won that many but anyways but who knows yeah i'll say the oscars made fun of it themselves for yeah. some goddamn reason everyone uh, yeah cats anyhow. is bad but it's it's weird um go see it uh anyway so yeah and also uh go see the world is not enough um I, if you enjoyed goldeneye maybe you'll enjoy this one as well it's a it's the often neglected but uh relatively solid bond yeah, sequel to goldeneye definitely, definitely worth a, a refresh i think i'm very glad i came back to this one for sure yeah well uh i think that about does it for this episode uh jack so. do you have uh what uh what social media are you on these days should you want to talk to people yeah you can find me on twitter uh, too often i'm at real jack eason uh, so yeah drop me a line tell me uh, tell me what's right. up excellent yeah i'm at uh, jake tropila t-r-o-p-i-l-a you can also follow our main account at optimism vaccine or email us at optimism vaccine at gmail.com uh what do you think about the world is not enough is it one of your favorites do you think it's the worst brosnan let us know we want to hear all opinions um, but yeah, without further ado, I think uh, that's going to do it for uh, this week. I've been Jake Tropila. I've been Jack Eason. Yeah, and uh, for your ears only, we'll return with Die Another Day. 